listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. I say good morning, everybody. Morning. Hey, if you're visiting with us, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are ecstatic that you are here on the holiday weekend. Looks like fall weather is around the corner. Looks like football has kicked off. Go Mississippi State Bulldogs. Uh. <laughs> hey, <laughs> at least it's SEC, right? Can we, can we, can we, can we share that love? <laughs> hey, so if you are visiting with us, we are really glad you're here. If you want more information about us, multiple ways you can get connected. And Jared at the end will share some of those ways as well. But I'll just highlight one. There is a, a connect card there on that table. Just fill that dude out. And uh, look, we'll contact you on your terms. We're not going to show up at your house Tuesday night while you're in the middle of supper with your family and say, surprise. But we'll email you, text you, whatever you want. If you want that visit, we'll be glad to do it. That's for sure. Anyway, so just fill that out. See, talk to me. Hand it to me. Talk to one of the other pastors, Rusty and Jared, at the end of the service. We will want you guys to get as much information to get connected as much as you possibly can. Hey, any Cardinal fans in here? Yeah. Wow, a lot. I'm going to share, amen, yes, <laughs> this man's from Chicago, <laughs> so um, i let you guys in on a little something, there's uh, some tension that happens on, between your pastors, <laughs> Jared, who's diehard Cardinal fan, yeah, yeah, me, who's a diehard Chicago Cubs fan, yeah, <laughs> And Rusty is the sensible voice between us all. <laughs> He's our referee. But if you guys have been around us for any length of time, y'all know that Jared likes to use this platform to bash the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> so it's my turn. So will you mute me for just a second? Now, it's my turn to talk about the Cubs this morning, and I'm not even opening the Bible. We're just talking talk about the greatness of the Cubs, right? <laughs> hey, look, I don't mind bashing when they suck, and they have sucked for a long time, but they're stinking good this year, okay? <laughs> hey, still in third. I'm just glad. Look, can we agree that we're just happy the Astros aren't in the division? <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, man. Anyway, turn in your Bible to Psalm 127. Let's get serious for a little bit, I guess. <laughs> Psalms chapter 127. If you don't have a Bible there, we'll put the words on the screen. Uh, there's also black ESV Bibles out there on the welcome table. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, that is for you. Psalm 127, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, build it in vain, or labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. 
The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let me pray one more time for us as we dive into this passage for a few moments. Father, thank you that you are a great dad to us. You are a perfect dad to us, loving us unconditionally. And we're just asking this morning that we are reminded of how you parent us and let that motivate us in the way we parent our children, the way we even uh, speak to our children, the way that we re- uh, relate to our grandchildren, to other people's children that we come, a- come in contact with. Father, we're just asking that we're reminded of your great grace and your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that uh, Don and I have four children. Yeah, absolutely. But it never fails that every time we tell someone that, we get this, well, bless your heart, kind of look. And it's like, I don't, I don't understand that. Here, listen to some of the uh, comments that, that we've had. Now, our youngest is three months old, and here's some of the comments that we get just within the last three months. Boy, you've got your hands full, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And I get this one. You know what causes that, don't you? <laughs> yes, and by you reminding me makes me want to go make another one. So, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to deter me from having kids by telling me what causes that. <laughs> Holy cow. Listen. <laughs> Wait until those girls get to be teenagers. That's why we have the hunting camp. <laughs> Dad, think about all those weddings and college or when they start driving. We know it's going to be hard. We know. Here's what Donna gets. Are they all yours? <laughs> I mean, like, what's coming up with these questions? And here's the best. Here's the best. A few weeks back, Donna Mama was shopping at uh, the mall in Jonesboro. And she goes to the cash register to check out. She, it's just her and Eva. I've got the other three. I'm spazzing out at home with the other three while she is uh, enjoying some time with just her and Eva. And uh, this young lady at the cashier, her late teens, early 20s, she says, Oh, is that your first? Donna, Mom, she wells up with pride. No, ma'am, this is my fourth. To which she has met. Oh, no, that's horrible. I can't make that up. She literally said, oh, no, that's horrible. <laughs> like, what are you like, you're talking about my kids here? <laughs> but, I mean, the truth is, Donna, we love these comments. We have fun with them. We probably sinfully make fun of the people who make, who make these comments. But we really enjoy. And, look, we, like any parent knows, you wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. Right? It whether you have one child or whether you have four kids or more, like you wouldn't trade any of that. No one ever talks about how much fun parenting is. You know, we heard all the horror stories, all about the constant feedings, constant butt wipings, constant spit up cleanings, changing outfits, always being late. Like we heard all those stories and we experienced all those but no one talks to you about just how amazing it is to be a mom or dad. No one talks to you about a son who just 
who a dad just all he wants to do is hang out with his son and go play catch with him. Or as Andrew says, he's three. He says, "I'm gonna go hunting land." I mean, he's always saying, "I'm gonna go hunting land with daddy." No one talks about those kind of fun things. No one talks about how your heart just melts when you see your daughters perform their dance recital. No one talks about the happiness you get when on Christmas morning just watching your kids open presents. And we wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Now, what if we as a church collectively view children this way? Like we viewed them not as culture sees them. Culture sees them as burdens. Like if you have more than two kids, what's wrong with you? Or like as hindrances to maybe what you could have achieved more of if you didn't have these little anchors holding you down? What if we really began to view children as gifts? Like the Bible says there in verse 4, uh, excuse uh, now where am I at? Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage. That means they're a legacy. It says that they are the womb, fruit of the womb, a reward. God is giving us these beautiful gifts to have and to raise and to hold and to cherish and to love. And what if we as a church really began to look at all the kids around us, all the kids that are in our families, and we really began to believe that these little dudes running around are rewards to us, are gifts to us? What would that change in your parenting? What would change by the way you teach them, by the way you think about them? See, what we do now with our children has lasting impacts. That's going to, go, going to just go into multiple generations to come. Because your children are going to reach people that you are not otherwise going to reach and they're going to go places that you're otherwise not going to go. And that's what... Scripture is saying they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Think about what an arrow, what you do with an arrow. You pull the bow out and you shoot it, right? You release the arrow. And that's what we're doing as parents. We're raising our children, these little arrows, so that we, when the time is ready for them, we can release them into the world to go and reach the people that we're not going to reach, to go to the places that we would not otherwise go. What we do now matters greatly for generations to come. Parents, our days are long with our children, but our years are extremely short with them. How many of you have looked at your watch at 6 o'clock and said, two more hours till bedtime? (laughs) And I think I can get them in a bath for one of those hours. (laughs) But you don't ever hear about a parent who says, wow, I mean, every, excuse me, every parent says, yesterday I was just wiping her bottom and now she's graduating college. Or, holy cow, it was just like yesterday we were bringing, home, bringing her home for the hospital and now she's getting married. They're growing up too fast. Like, our days are extremely long with our children, but our years are so short with them. And so what we do now matters greatly. The time we have with them. Hannah, our oldest, is seven years old. And I remind Donna, she is almost halfway out of the house. If she stays till she's 19, uh, 18, then she's, almost ha- she's at least a third of her life with us. As she's got- we have two-thirds left with her. What we do now matters. 
to really grasp how important this is and what, how we invest in our children, what we teach them. I, just, I would share a uh, story with you. A man by the name of Jim Priest, who was an attorney, he was a minister, he founded this place called Marriage Works. He uh, wrote about this reality of the impact we have on our children and the generations to come. He wrote, You ever wonder whether your life really matters? Do you sometimes ask yourself whether the sacrifices you've made for your family will have any lasting effect? Let me assure you, your life does matter and your family's sacrifices do have an impact. I base this bold statement on two studies about how a person's actions affect the lives of his or her family and generations that follow. The research centered on the lives of two men, Max Duke and Jonathan Edwards. According to research conducted by Richard Dugdale, Duke was reportedly an atheist who believed in liberation from laws. He allegedly advocated free sex, no formal education, and hated imposed responsibilities. Juke was a hunter and a fisher, a hard drinker, a jolly and companionable man, adverse to steady toll, working hard in spurts and idling by turns. He had numerous offspring, some of them almost certainly illegitimate. In other words, Juke was neither principled or industrious. Some years later, a man named A.E. Winship studied what happened to the descendants of the colonial era, era evangelist Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards was everything Juke was not. God-fearing, hard-working, Bible-believing, devoted, committed. Winship wrote that Edwards was a godly minister who was credited with igniting the great awakening in American history through his sermons. And for a brief period just before his death, he served as the president of Princeton University. Certainly, Duke and Edwards had effect on their immediate families, but what about the generations that followed? Here's what happened. happens, he writes. In the years after Duke and Edwards died, in his study, Dugdale found that of the 1,026 descendants of Max Duke, 300 were convicts, 27 were murderers, 190 were prostitutes, and 509 were either alcoholics or drug addicts. Dugdale was able to estimate that the Jukes had cost the state of New York almost $1.4 million to house, institutionalize, and treat the Juke family. By contrast, the 929 descendants of Jonathan Edwards included 13 college presidents, 86 college professors, 430 ministers, 314 war veterans, 75 authors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, seven U.S. representatives, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of the U.S. Treasury. Members of Edwards' family have written at least 135 books, edited 18 journals, and they entered the ministry in droves, sending out hundreds to the foreign mission field. That's an interesting contrast between two men. And what we do now has lasting impact on generations to come with our children. Long after 
you and I are gone. So I just want to spend some time this morning, not like in sermon mode, but just in share with you guys things that my wife and I have learned through Scripture over the years of parenting. I know some of you guys have way more experience parenting than Don and I. We've only been doing this seven years, but uh, I'm passionate about kids. I'm passionate about parents, about gospel-centered, grace-centered parenting, and I hope that we can all learn something uh, together this morning. I think that there are two primary concerns when it comes to parenting our children and what we want to teach and instill in them. One, I believe we need to teach our children that it is good to live under God's authority. And secondly, we need to teach our children that we need to be consumed with them, treasuring Jesus above all things. And so let's just kind of tease these two things out for a little bit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. six. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So let's answer this question. What do I mean when I say we, we should be teaching our children that it is good to live under God's authority. And how do we model that? How do we teach that to them? Because culture tells us that being under any authority is not good. It's oppressive. It's restrictive. So naturally being under God's authority is going to be even more restrictive. More oppressive. When scripture tells us it's totally the opposite. And in fact... You and I have issues with authority, so naturally our children are going to have issues with authority. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because this is exactly the lie that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. If you eat this fruit, you're going to be wise. You'll be your own God. God doesn't want you eating that fruit because he knows you'll be like him. You'll be able to run your own life and do better than him at it. So Eve believes the lie, right? She eats the fruit thinking that she can run her, her life way better than God can run her life. And ever since then, we have major issues with authority. We get, author we get God wrong, therefore we get authority wrong. We get authority wrong, therefore we get God wrong. We just have no idea how great it is to live under God's authority. It's great because God has designed life to work best when we submit to Him. He's not oppressing us. He's liberating us. He's not controlling your freedoms. He's giving you more freedom. Life works best when we live it under submission to Him. In other words, God's rule equals blessing for your life. And it will our children's life. When they understand that living under God's authority is good for them. Now as parents, we got to teach that. So Paul begins by saying, Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now why is Paul saying this? 
He's got something bigger here he's, he's, he's trying to drive home. Just think about, think about the past two weeks that we've talked about marriage and how Paul said, hey, look, the ultimate purpose for marriage is not the relationships between the husband and wife, is not the roles. Yes, those things are important, but the primary picture for marriage is to show you Christ's relationship with the church. Right? And he's doing the same thing here. He, what he's showing us is authority your children obeying and honoring the parents is primarily not so that you can get them to do what you want them to do. Primarily not so that you can have an easier life raising your children. But it's primarily about teaching them to submit to God's authority ultimately. Does that make sense? Does you see how that works there? It's not... When Paul instructs his children to not... I mean... It's, <laughs> to obey and honor their children. It's not about just so that you can have an easier life and be controlling over them. It's about them learning to submit to authority because submitting to authority teaches them to submit to God's authority, which is good for them. So let me just encourage you, parents. It's okay to command and demand your child's obedience and discipline when they don't obey. It's okay. You don't have to feel like a bad parent for making your child do something they don't want to do. We're teaching them something greater here. We're teaching them more than just obey mom and dad. We're teaching them about obey God, submit to God, listen to His authority over their life. And we also show that to them by our actions, that living under God's authority is good. I mean, we must reflect who God is in our parenting if, and, and show how good God is so that they will want to submit to Him and enjoy submitting to them. So what kind of father is God to us? Well, from Scripture we know that He's gracious and He's loving and He's kind and He's good and He's gentle and patient with us. But we also see in verse 4 that He does not provoke His children to anger. So Paul gives the command to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What does that mean? In a short answer, it means that we discipline or make demands of them out of selfish motives. And I'll give you an example this week. Wednesday, Wednesday night actually. Uh, Monday and Tuesday, our two daughters were playing great, laughing. I even recorded them one evening for nine minutes, just them playing in the living room so I could just listen to their laughter over and over. But Wednesday, the turn, the tide changed. And we're like in all-out World War Three at our house. And... Um, they have, they're just fighting since you bring them home from school. Well, they're in the shower, and they're just going at it like cats in there. And I have had enough of it. So instead of walking in there and walking them through what's going on, I said, I'm going to get them. There's this bucket right here. I'm going to fill this sucker up with cold water. <laughs> I stood on the toilet. I looked over at them and dumped it right on them. <laughs> Guess what? The arguing stopped. <laughs> but guess what? <laughs> the anger, the beast came alive out of those two kids. <laughs> and so now I've got myself into a bigger mess because I provoked them to anger instead of lovingly walk them through their issues. I said, 
I'm sick of this arguing, and I actually said this. And if y'all continue to argue, I'm going to put ice in that bucket and do it again. (laughs) I just want them to stop arguing. See how I was disciplining them out of selfish motives? This house is going crazy right now. we got to get it back in order. Cold water on them in the shower is going to do it. Other things that we can do as parents uh, that would provoke our children to anger would be excessive or severe discipline, harsh demands, unreasonable demands that we place on them, abuse of your own authority. You know, go get this, go get that, go get this. Mom, can you help me here? No, now go get that. Unfairness, nagging them, condemning them humiliating your children, comparison, comparing them to other siblings, you know, comparing, well, look, they're not crying. Those are all ways that we can provoke our children to anger, guys, and this is not the way God parents us. Thankfully, he does it. He's not humiliating us. He doesn't condemn us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is no condemnation. He is sensitive to us. He does not treat us harshly. His authority is an authority of love and grace over our life. And we as parents must be pictures of that. Another way that we picture that it's good to live under God's authority is by us ourselves living under His authority. Parents, You will not be effective at teaching your children that it is good to live under God's God's authority if you are not submitting to that same authority. You will not be effective at teaching your children that it is good to live under God's authority if you are not submitting to that authority. If you are not living a spirit-filled life, a life of obedience, holiness to God, surrendering all your decisions, your control, your finances, your future... Under his authority, we won't be able to effectively teach our children to do the same. I shared with you a parenting fail. I'd like to try to share with you a parenting success. Hopefully it's a success. Just trying to teach our children that submitting under God's authority and modeling it for them is in one way, this is a simple way, in tithing, we, every time our children get money for birthday or Christmas or maybe they're doing a job around the house that we don't ask or require them to do and they want to earn a little extra money, like we tell them, we command them to tithe because it's what Jesus has done. And we model that for them by tithing and we lead them to give 10% of what they've earned. So Andrew, who's three, turned... Uh, Turned three a week, two weeks ago. He got 70 bucks for his birthday, so he's going to tithe 10%, and we're going to walk with him through that to show him and model for him that we want to, mommy and daddy want to live our life under submission because it is good. And now, son, we want you to live your life under submission to him. The second half of verse 4 also tells us to bring them up in the discipline. And the instruction of the Lord. 
And this is where I think we can really start walking through being consumed with teaching our children to treasure Jesus above all things. So we want them to live under submission to Him, but not out of habit, not out of because mom and dad taught me to, but we want them to live under His submission because they treasure Jesus above all things. And this is countercultural. Think about families right now. Think about some typical families you know of. Their daughter's probably play, maybe playing on the traveling softball team and is also in dance and is also uh, maybe a cheerleader or in beauty pageants on top of all the schoolwork they got to do. They may have a son who is playing soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, soccer again in the spring along with baseball and all the schoolwork that they have to do. And if he's good enough at one of them, they'll probably put him on a traveling team. And if you have a third kid, you're just dragging them along to my brother and sister stuff. I mean, that's, that's a very typical life within a family. Or maybe it isn't about the extracurricular activities. Maybe there is excessive, um, excessive, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm going off on my notes and I shouldn't do that. Um, maybe, the, maybe there's an excessive pressure to perform well in school. Maybe you're consumed with your child getting good grades so that they can get into a good college, hopefully on a scholarship, so they can get a good job, make good money, have a family. And so a lot of your time is, sent, is spent pressuring, putting the pressure on them to make good grades. You either want your children to be successful in a sport or some activity, or you want them to be super successful in, a, in school. I mean, what are we teaching our kids with this kind of lifestyle? I mean, we're teaching them that their world revolves around them. Treasure their successes. Treasure their accomplishments more than treasuring Jesus. They're not centering their lives on Jesus and what He would have them do, but rather centering their lives on how much they can accomplish. Now look, there's nothing wrong with wanting your child to be good at a sport. There's nothing wrong with practicing. There's nothing wrong with being involved in extracurricular activities. No, there's no... Nothing wrong at all with that. There's nothing wrong with you wanting your child to study and make good grades. There's nothing wrong with you wanting them to get into a good college. There's nothing wrong for you to want them to have a good job. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when, we, when those things become more important than knowing and treasuring Jesus, now we have a problem because now it's an idol. So ask yourself this question. Parents, what do I most want for my children? What do you most want for your children? Honestly, like, take a heart check there and really ask yourself and really honestly answer that. Because the way you answer that question is a good measuring stick for what you really treasure the most. Are you okay with your child? not getting into a good college, getting married at a young age, working minimum wage the rest of their life, but all the while being devoted to following Jesus, spending their energies investing and making disciples rather than investing in the stock market? Are you okay with that? Our true values are revealed in the expectations that we have for our children. So what are the expectations on your children? Is it primarily to be what the culture defines as successful in life? 
Or is it to ultimately treasure Jesus above all? We must teach our children that treasuring Jesus is the most important thing in their life. And why is treasuring Jesus the most important thing in their life? Because Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what God is saying there is, God makes known to you the path of life and there is joy in His presence. There is pleasures in His hand. You want them to treasure Jesus because that is a life that is full of joy. That is a life that is meaningful. That is a life that is full of pleasure. Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. God is for your child's joy, and he knows that the most joy they're going to find is when they treasure him above all things. So how do we teach our children to treasure Jesus above all things? Let's get practical for a little bit. I would first begin, parents, by not letting Jesus be important just at 9.30 on Sunday morning. Don't let, don't let Jesus talk only happen on the way home from the 9.30 when you ask them what they learn about. Make Jesus a regular conversation in your home as natural as you asking them how their day at school was. Listen to Deuteronomy 6. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Our children need to see that Jesus is not an accessory to our life, but he's the center of our life. So parents, wife, mom, your children need to see that Jesus is more important to you than your husband and more important to you than them. Dad, your children need to see that Jesus is more important to you than your wife and more important to you than them. They need to see that Jesus is not some distant figure. He's not some kind of genie that you can rub the bottle and he'll pop out when you need him. They need to see your life revolved around Jesus. They need to see you treasuring Jesus above all things. Another way that we can teach your children to treasure Jesus are in moments of our disciplining them. Now, parents, I want to say something here that might be a shock, (laughs) might be hard to receive, but I'm really going to try to say this as tenderly and as graciously as I can. Your child and my children, just like you and me, are not good people. Yes, your children are gullible. Yes, they are vulnerable. Yes, they are naive, but they are not innocent. 
It is in them to be naturally sinful little kids. And you know it's true because you've seen the way your kids act. I didn't teach my son to hit his sisters when he didn't get his way. But he does it. Hannah, when she was about 20 months old, we would, she would get into something that we wouldn't want her to. And we would take it away from her. And literally, she would just start banging her head on furniture, like on wood. I'm not kidding you. Donna didn't teach her that when I was gone to work. <laughs> I don't think. Lydia, just this week, said this. We were asking her about school, and Donna asked her about doing her work. Literally, she says this, yeah, but only when the teacher's looking. <laughs> like, we're not telling them that, I promise you. Andrew walks around all the time saying, yeah, I do, yeah, I do, son. Do not hit your sister. Yeah, I do. Son, put your tra- do not throw your food in the floor. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Like, we're not, I'm not walking around saying, yeah, I do all the time. <laughs> Our children, it's in them. They are born selfish. They are born self-centered. They are born sinful. And that's exactly how the Bible describes them. I'm not making this up. Like, this is coming from God's Word. Psalm 51 Five says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 58 says, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward, speaking lies, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra. Look, as sweet. And as adorable and as cute and cuddly our children are, those little suckers are vipers and diapers, man. (laughs) Those dudes are snakes, man. (laughs) They're sneaky. They deceive. They lie. They want their way all the time. Look, they cry when they don't get their way. Who who does that? (laughs) Like, they're so selfish. If you take something that's not good from them, they cry. My son has yet to learn by three that crying when we say it's nap time doesn't work. <laughs> Mommy and daddy win. You will, go to, you will lay down for a nap. <laughs> they are so selfish, guys. And it's in their heart. It's naturally in their heart. And that's why it comes out. Jesus says in Mark 7, from within, out of the person's heart come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, and theft, and murder, and adultery, and greed, and wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So if you want your children to begin treasuring Jesus above all, it's not the behavior that we need to be disciplining. It's their heart that's what needs to be addressed. Because our kids lie because in their heart there's sin going on. When my son hits his sisters, I don't want to discipline the hitting. I want to discipline the reason, the motivation for why he hit my, his sisters. When my, when my daughter lies and tries to be sneaky, I don't want to discipline the lying. I want to discipline the motivation and going on in her heart for why she's lying. It, 
It's not behavior modification that I want from my children. I don't want to simply raise good kids who mind their manners and do as they're told. I want their heart to be transformed. I want to go deeper than a surface level behavior. A little a catchy phrase that we can all remember is that we should desire heart transformation more than behavior modification. What's that look like? Let's let's just think about our own disciplining and how we discipline our children today. This is what discipline, heart discipline, does not look like. And guys, I'm holding my hands up. I'm guilty of all of these, okay? It's manipulative. A discipline that, that does not address the heart is often manipulative. Fearful or threatening. You know how many of y'all have said, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to wear that bottom out. <laughs> and I've said a thousand times, I never want to threaten my children with that, but I do it all the time. <laughs> Bribery. Son, if you would just stop crying, I will get you that candy when we leave. Nor does discipline that not reach the heart. It doesn't appeal to the emotions. It's not full of guilt, in other words. After all I've done for you, you still go and do that? Or this comment, and guys, please, please don't say this to your kids. I'm so disappointed in you. Look, if I tell that to my seven-year-old, I can have her like putty in my hands. But all that is doing is addressing what I want to immediately happen and not what's going on in her heart. These are all examples of discipline that does not get to the heart of the problem. Yes, it gets immediate results. Yes, it makes for a quieter evening at the house. But it's not a lasting result. If you want your child to treasure Jesus, it's the heart that needs changing, not their behavior. So what does discipline of the heart look like? Well, it looks like the way God disciplines us as His children. It's gracious. It's loving. It's tender. It's condemnation-free. It's firm. It's with authority. It's consistent. It's clear. It's calm. It's not yelling at us. Y'all like me, you yell at your kids all the time in the middle of discipline, and Donna has to remind me over and over, God's not yelling at us, Luke. Yeah, but they're not listening. Neither am I. <laughs> Guys, you're going to have to... This takes a lot of work. I'm just going to say that. You're not going to go home today and your child's going to lie to you and you're going to have this wonderful conversation that really gets at the heart. Like, this takes a lot of work. It is super hard. And it's probably going to happen the most when you're already late for something. <laughs> or when you're trying... When you got supper that's cooking, a three-month-old that needs to be fed, a three-year-old that's saying... Ah! Mine, mine, mine. And then you got your sisters fighting. That's, and then you just don't have time. You're going to feel like you don't have time for this. And it's going to be hard. 
But heart discipline takes work at getting at the heart of the matter, at understanding and learning your children, asking questions. Questions like, what did you want when you did that? What, what were you hoping to achieve by lying to me? Why did you do that? Why did, why did you hit your sister? Well, in that moment, what was, my, what was most important to you? Help me understand what you're thinking. What's going on? These are all questions that will get to the motivation for why they're acting the way they act. And this is where we get to the heart in discipline. And so now you're not spanking them for telling a lie. You may be spanking them for saying, for believing, not trusting that Jesus is better, or spanking them for the selfishness that's deep-rooted in their heart, thinking that they can control their own life, and, and the list can go on and on. So you move away from disciplining the hitting or the, the, the lying, the, the, just the flat-out disobedience, and you get to why they are not doing it. Get past their excuses. He started at first. Well, she hit me. Like, get past those things. And address both. Like, it doesn't matter who started it. Right now, there's anger in your heart. And we got to get to this. We got to get to the bottom of what's going on. And also realize, guys, that a child who goes to their room and sulks and pouts, but is quiet, is equally as sinful as the child who screams and yells at you. And there's the same issues are going on in their heart. And so how does heart discipline lead them to treasuring Jesus? Because not only heart discipline address the motivation behind what's going on, heart discipline leads them to Jesus. To see that Jesus is better than what they're currently believing. Show your children their need for Jesus in moments of discipline. Show them how he came to set them free from lying, from selfishness, from anger, from being controlling. Show them that they are a sinner desperately in need of Jesus. Show them that you, the parent, are a sinner in desperate need for Jesus. Show them that Jesus came and died on the cross to wipe their sin clean. And that he gives power to overcome their sin in moments of temptation. Teach them that the next time they feel anger coming up in their heart, to run to Jesus. Jesus, help me. Here's the deal. Jesus knows exactly the temptations they are facing. Because he faced the very same temptations, yet he overcame them all. Teach your children that Jesus is the one they run to in moments of sin. And lead your children in moments of discipline to Jesus. In our house, we have this saying, and our kids can finish it if, if you start it for them. We say, disobedience always leads to pain. But obedience always leads to joy. So what I mean is when we tell our kids disobedience always leads to pain... It's either it's going to be pain on the rear end or it's going to be the pain of us taking something away from them. But we don't just leave it on that surface level. It's, it's really not us that, that 
is administering the most form, most form of pain. The ultimate pain that their disobedience has led to is Jesus on the cross. So even in moments, maybe we're out in public, we're out at a restaurant and they're just going bananas and we want to discipline them in that moment, but yet probably not the best place to just snap my belt off and wear their bottoms out right there. We can still discipline their heart by showing them that even though why you may not be, be feeling physical pain right now, your disobedience led to the most physical pain ever felt on earth when Jesus was on the cross. And he did that for your sin in this moment. And conversely, we tell them that disobedience always leads to joy. It goes well for my children if they obey mom and dad. If we tell our son, stop chasing the ball in the street when it rolls out there, that's, if he obeys, good things will happen. He won't get hit by a car. We tell our children, clean your room. We tell them because good things will happen. You're being taught multiple things, going responsibility and all these kind of things, and it will go well for you. There is joy to be had in our home when you obey. Just like there is joy to be had with Jesus when we submit our life to Him. When we live under His authority, under His rule, we find ourselves obeying His commands. There is joy to be had. His rules are not oppressive. His rules are not restricting. They are life-giving. Therefore, our children's obedience will lead to their joy. Now, in closing, if you're like what I ha- a parent like me, and you've heard some of my failures, I'm constantly broken as a, as a dad. I fail at this type of parenting every day. I'm not, this is ideal. This is what I want. But I'm not great at it. And maybe you've never even heard of parenting like this. Maybe this is something that's totally new to you. And maybe you, you may even feel overwhelmed right now. Or maybe you're carrying uh, guilt from maybe your kids are gone and you're like, I didn't do any of that stuff. What's going to happen now? Maybe you rarely pointed them to Jesus. Maybe you disciplined majorly out of selfish motives and you did not get to the heart of the matter. Let's just read Psalm 127, 1 and 2 again real quick. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Ultimately, guys, whether you're in the middle of parenting young ones, teenagers, whether you're a grandparent, whether your kids are gone, it's ultimately Jesus who transforms the heart. We cannot do that. The only thing we can do is lead them to Jesus and pray for them like crazy. Jesus has to do the building for you. So parent, there's no need to carry any past guilt or shame for mistakes in parenting 
or failures as a parent. There's, and, and there's no need to carry any future anxiety about your children and what kind of decisions they will make and what will happen to them. Just a few months ago, Don and I, we got to uh, go on vacation together without kids. It was glorious. And we were sitting on the plane, and Donna says, Oh, my goodness. What's going on, babe? I've got a lot of anxiety just welled up in me. Well, what's, what's going on? What, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if we crash? <laughs> well, I wasn't planning on crashing, but you know what? You're right. We very well may crash on this plane, and we very well may die. And our kids are back in Arkansas. But you know what? She doesn't have to have, we don't have to have anxiety about that because Jesus loves our kids way more than I love them. And he has promised to take care of them. And Jared and Megan are getting our kids, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) We don't have to carry anxiety about your child's future. You don't have to carry guilt about the way you parented them in the past. You've been set free from any of that. The Lord is the one who builds the house. Jesus loves you. He loves your children. Jesus desires that you submit to him, that you treasure him. He desires that your children submit to him and that they treasure him. So rest in him, treasure him, submit to him, and teach your children to do the same. Let's pray. Father, you're so gracious and kind to us to be so gentle with us. Just in my own knucklehead mistakes of parenting and failures as a parent, you are so kind to me and reassuring me that um, your grace is sufficient to cover all my parenting failures. You are so kind to remind me that, Jesus, you love my children more than I could ever love them. That you desire that my children follow you more than I could ever desire that my children follow you. And I'm thankful that you love them and care for them that much. Help us to rest this morning in your finished work. In the work that you're doing in our lives. And not be bogged down with parenting fails. And help us to leave here this morning motivated by the way you parent us, Father. And how you are so tender to us. And you're so kind and gracious in our moments of sin and our moments of rebellion. Just remind us of how good you are to us this morning. Amen.